This episode is sponsored by Echo. Hear clearly, care confidently. Learn more at echohealth.com. That's E-K-O health.com. And use code JSP for $50 off any stethoscope. Just Some Podcast Media. The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, how's it going, man? Oh, it's it's fantastic, Ben. I couldn't possibly be happier in any way, shape, or form. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing okay. I guess you're kind of weirding me out a little bit because I can see your face, and sometimes the face don't match the words, so yeah. But here, you know, we're seeing that spike in COVID like we're seeing everywhere else. And we're seeing some flu cases now. I had a couple of those in the offices today. And so, yeah, just fun times. The dreaded flu-rona. I've not seen that one, but I have had a couple of patients who tested positive for like rapid flu in the office. Ended up going to the hospital because they worsened and were positive for corona or COVID, but not flu. But our flu a rapid flu test in the office was positive. It's kind of weird. I have not seen that. So that is a new one to me. And if you are listening out there and you haven't seen that in your area, go ahead and drop us a line. We'd like to keep in contact for stuff like that going on around America. Well, hell around the world, but primarily here in America is where we'd be looking for that. But no, Ben, we have had multiple cases of people with both COVID and flu or this is a one that I'm like, well, just sounds terrible. COVID and strep. So that's, yeah, that's a miserable, that's a miserable combo right there as well. Strovid. Ooh. Covip. I, I don't, I'm, I'm kind of going with Strovid. I, I like, like the Strovid. I like the Strovid. Yeah. yeah. So in some uh, Mandela effect universe somewhere, Tom, there's a potential then that you could get flu, COVID and strep. It'd be like Instrepcona. I don't know. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. The triple play. But other than that, how's uh, everything? We are, you know, of course, bouncing back and forth between podcasts now, between the old JSP and we'll continue to monitor. We've cranked out some good episodes on both sides. So that's been fun. It has been fun and surprisingly frustrating because we've gotten so used to how we do things on this show and we're taking a slightly new format on our next show, make it a little tighter, a little more scripted like, I mean, it's not, but it kind of is, and it's just not how we're used to doing things. So it's been, uh, it's been interesting trying to record several of these new episodes. Yeah, but we'll get a good thing of it. I mean, if you go back and listen to our episodes, our first episodes from this. Oh, God, don't do that. Yeah, I mean, it was. Yeah, don't. Oh, it was horrible. Matter of fact, I'd vote for us to just remove those from the library at this point. So, well, you know, we'll see what happens. But I guess we could do our social media and all that good stuff and uh, jump into this episode. Let's jump into this episode. Let's let's do the things. Do the things, you know, the stuff. So you can find us, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast, or our website, www.justsomepodcast.com. Email us, admin. Ooh, no, that's the old one. Email us. I'm going to leave that in, too. Email us, jsp <laughs> at justsomepodcast.com. And don't forget to check out our other shows that we have under the Just Some Podcast umbrella. we got... David with Nurse Papa. We got Pollyanna Amazing with Buried Pleasures. And of course, Tom and I over on will continue to monitor. So make sure you check out all those shows. Give us some JSP love and go from there. Tom, let's say they just wanted to help out the show, help out JSP Media. What could they do to help us out? 
Well, they could first decide to do some shopping and, you know, I don't really have any Where control they over that. Well, that's what I was going to say, Ben, is if they decide to do some shopping and let's face it, nobody wants to get off their couch. Nobody wants to go out and get Fluorona or anything like that. So you're going to do it on some Amazon. Do it on some Amazon. Ooh, yeah. yeah, works. And when you go to Amazon to complete your shopping, if you go to just some podcast media first, that's key. Go to just on podcast media first, scroll down to just about the bottom of the page. You'll see an Amazon affiliate link. Click on that and then go add stuff to your cart. Go to your shopping, go to your browsing, pick whatever you want, buy it. It does not cost you an extra anything to help out the show. And we would really appreciate it. Though I am curious who bought the 187 sea monkeys, but I mean, more power to you. It doesn't tell us who or where, but I'm betting Iowa. That sounds like an Iowa thing. <laughs> All right, Tom, are you ready to jump into our story that you may have missed? I guess I'm ready. Probably didn't really miss. Well, I mean. Been, been big news, but I figure, you know, we should talk about it. Too. <laughs> okay, well, let's do the story we may have probably not missed. Yeah, that doesn't roll off the tongue as well, so. It does not. So the University of Maryland, Tom, has performed a historic xenotransplantation in the first of its kind surgery. A 57-year-old patient with terminal heart disease received a successful transplant of a genetically modified pig heart and was still doing well three days later. It was the only available option for the patient. He was quoted as saying, it was either die or do this transplant. I want to live. I know it's a shot in the dark, but it was my last choice. And he had been hospitalized and bedridden for the past few months because of his worsening heart. And he says, quote, I look forward to getting out of bed after I recover. Uh, the FDA granted emergency authorization for the surgery on New Year's Eve through its expanded access compassionate use provision. And that's used when an experimental medical product, in this case, the genetically modified pig's heart, is the only option available for a patient faced with a serious or life-threatening medical condition. Dr. Griffith, who successfully transplanted the heart into the patient, said this was a breakthrough surgery and brings us one step closer to solving the organ shortage crisis. There are simply not enough donor human hearts available to meet the long list of potential recipients. He then went on to say, we are proceeding cautiously, but we are also optimistic that this first in the world surgery will provide an important new option for patients in the future. Uh, the article does go on to say, Tom, that about 110,000 Americans are currently waiting for organ transplant and more than 6,000 patients die each year before getting one. And this could potentially save thousands of lives, although it does carry its own unique set of risk, including the possibility of triggering a dangerous immune response. And what that does is it can trigger an immediate rejection of the organ with a potentially deadly outcome to the patient. Xenotransplants were first tried in the 1980s and were abandoned after uh, the famous case of Baby Faye in Loma Linda University in California. It was an infant and she was born with a fatal heart condition. They received a baboon heart transplant died within a month of the procedure due to the immune system rejection of the foreign heart. But things have changed since the 80s, and we have been using pig heart valves more successfully in replacing valves in humans. And so that uh, was the story, Tom. Thoughts? S several. My first is, does he suddenly find himself wanting or avoiding Jimmy Dean sausage? Uh, really has he? There? Wow, really? Has it's obvious, but I figured we better hit the low hanging fruit first because like the next thing was, has he found himself trying to wallow at any point since getting the pig heart? You're, I just, you're a horrible, horrible man. Now let's get some real thoughts, Tom. <laughs> I, I don't feel horrible, but I don't know. I I am super excited about us taking a step in a new direction like that. I'm also deeply deeply saddened that we're still in this position yeah, I can see that. to be fair to the scientists working on this there was more open use of things like stem cells or if we had a more robust donation program in, in united states perhaps we wouldn't be in quite such a dire situation but unfortunately politicians that don't know anything about what science is or how science works has blocked stem cell research and you know, I mean, it is a personal choice. So if people don't want to donate, I, I mean, I have my own thoughts and feelings on that, but I just, I'm just, I guess, saddened overall, like all the medical advances we make, we're in the same position we were in 1980. You know, I mean, it just, I mean, 40 years. It makes me wonder 
how far away we are before like we're able to like 3d print a heart or you know some, yeah. some other form other than humans or animals you know like an artificial heart well i'm assuming they've been looking at that my my question becomes then what is the barrier like what is that thing moving forwards that is blocking our progress i would assume as we've talked about before and the famous quote with uh greg is money you know i'm assuming with enough money we could solve this problem because well we saw what happened with COVID 19 when the entire world stops it starts putting its money forward guess what <laughs> they found a way to make things work real quick i don't know I, I i am super excited for this person i i wish him all the best all jokes aside i i think that the doctor that did this surgery is courageous and groundbreaking i'm just deeply saddened for us overall i guess is what i'm saying because like i said you you just mentioned what was the baby's name baby Faye. baby Faye. yeah yeah baby Faye. that was almost 40 years ago and we are in the same boat if not worse if, if you are a patient with a fatal disease right now it's hard to have a lot of optimism i mean we're We've made some great progress in stuff like cancer research, but not enough. We've made some great progress in stuff like transplants, but clearly not enough. And I guess I just don't know what the problem is or how to fix it. So as a clinician, I'm both excited and sad, I guess. And I know that's a weird combination to have, but it's true. I This is one of those times where I can see both sides of the coin and it's a good and bad thing. I wasn't expecting that answer. I don't know what I was expecting from you, but that wasn't it. So, you, were, you were expecting the Jimmy Dean comments. No, I That's really what wasn't. That was not. I was, <laughs> I was. I mean, I was a little offended, but like, damn, wow! Like, I can't leave you out there with it. But well, just imagine what that guy is. I'll just throw some corn on the ground. He'll leave me alone, Stop and it. then you know, it's not being, it's I'm not cutting it out. <laughs> well, Tom, before we get into our main topic tonight which is back to basics and we're going to talk about ear infections we need to talk about something that goes in your ear which is your stethoscope and we both use the echo health core digital stethoscope and this thing is just groundbreakingly cool yeah i know we've talked about it and honestly i don't plan on stopping anytime soon because it really is a piece of equipment that has changed the way i hear my patients and i truly believe that I haven't even really scratched the surface on all the things they can do. And when I do, I feel like it's going to make my ability to help student nurse practitioners and those around me do a better job. It is a truly magnificent stethoscope. And I really think if you use them daily, you should look into getting one. Yeah, 40 time amplification. It's got noise cancellation. It's got Bluetooth capabilities where it Bluetooths to your phone to the app that they have. You can actually record that on the app and they have telehealth available through their system as well, where you can actually send that off to a specialist and have them listen to whatever you're hearing. So, I mean, they have lots of cool features through Echo Health. And if you want to get one for yourself, you can go to echohealth.com. That's E-K-O-Health.com. You can use the code JSP for $50 off any stethoscope. They've got such a great response. They've stretched that out for a little bit longer. Is that correct, Ben? Yeah, you know, it was just through the holidays, but they decided, you know what? It's been so popular. We're giving that discount 50 bucks off. That's huge. Use code JSP at checkout. Like Tom said, 50 bucks off. Plus, it lets them know that you heard it from us. Tom, I think we need to talk about acute automatous media. Well, <laughs> I was going to say. I've been saving that joke all day. <laughs> well, Automatous? You know, your name's Tom. <laughs> oh, God. Automatous. I didn't even catch that. I thought you were just screwing it up on purpose to be like, oh, I can't hear my my hearing's muffled because I have acute otitis media. No, it's oh, I get it. Oh, my gosh. That's so much better. Okay. So, yeah, Ben, <laughs> acute otitis media or... The middle ear infection is something if you are going into family practice or you're dealing with children and adults to a lesser extent, you are going to be looking in people's ears a lot. Yeah, like most of the day. <laughs> and I will say 
by and large, one of the most common complaints, again, in pediatrics and to a lesser extent adults, is going to be ear pain. I have an ear infection. I need to be seen. I need antibiotics stat. Yeah, and so we thought that it would be best for us to do another Back to Basics episode where we kind of focus more on just the education and kind of covering everything, because there have been some changes with this um, within the last few years that I'll admit even I'm having a hard time kind of grasping. And I don't say I'm grasping, like I understand the, the science behind it, but it's hard to remember some of the changes that they've made. So we want to make sure we cover all that. It's hard to remember. And then to be completely fair, I think it's good for us to talk about what we do in our practice because some of the guidelines don't, let me rephrase that, the recommendations from, from some of the services are going to be things like, don't do anything or nothing's recommended, but your patient may not like that answer. So I think it's also good for us to talk about things that we do help to make the patients feel better and uh, get them through the ear pain. Because Ben, I don't know if you remember, but I had a lot of ear infections as a child and they're not fun. There is nothing fun about an ear infection. No, I have often heard people tell me that ears and teeth are two of the things that just hurt the absolute worst when it comes to like infectious processes. And, you know, I wonder if maybe it's just the close proximity to the brain. I don't know. But yeah, otitis media is actually the most common issue is going to be faced by providers caring for children. The AAFP says approximately 80% of children will have at least one episode of an acute otitis media. And between 80 and 90% will have at least one episode of otitis media with effusion before reaching school age. And just for those that aren't in the know, the AAFP is the American Academy of Family Physicians, and we're going to be referencing them quite a bit, as well as uh, other information sources such as UpToDate. There's a lot of good information out there. Of course, like we've talked about before with other things, there's also some bad information. So please make sure you go to like a peer-reviewed site or something that represents a professional organization and try and use their guidelines. I will say, though, as we talked about in the beginning and as you just pointed out, yeah, if you see families or children, you're going to be seeing a lot of ear pain slash ear infections. Well, let's go through kind of just this step-by-step time and we'll just kind of walk everybody through it. So let's start with presentation. You know, what are we seeing typically with presentation? Again, this is one of the helpful things. I guess I'm going to start at the very, very beginning for the way I look at things, Ben. And honestly, very rarely it is possible, but often these types of bacterial infections are going to be unilateral. Okay. So when the parent comes in, they said, well, both their ears are just killing them right off the bat. I'm like, okay, it's unlikely to be a true otitis media. That doesn't mean it can't be. It just means, eh, it's probably not going to be, but that's also one of the things I hone in on. If they're like, Hey, little Joey, He's been holding his left ear for like a day and he's saying it's just getting worse and worse. Like, uh oh, okay, we need to take a look at Joey's left ear and, you know, see what's going on. So usually pain and being unilateral are the first two things that I'm looking to hear for the report from the parent or the patient. And remember, with some of these kids, we're talking before school age, they may not be to that point of verbalization. So this may be, you know, this is one of the things where I ask my parents, you know, do you see them pulling on the ear a lot or anything like that? Because for a kid who can't verbalize, they can't tell you how my ear hurts, but they're going to be pulling at it, messing with it, trying to alleviate, you know, it hurts. And they're trying to Holding their it. hand over the ear. That's another one. Like they don't want anything messing with it. <laughs> so they just put their hand right over the entire ear to prevent you from touching it, getting near it messing with it. They know it hurts and they know they don't want you touching it. So that is a very good sign. That's an excellent point, Ben. The nonverbal kids will usually indicate in some way. You just have to pay attention and catch that sign. A fever is going to occur in approximately one to two thirds of children. So not necessarily every kid is kind of what that's what that's saying. So, you know, don't just assume that because even if they're pulling on the left ear and they don't have a fever, that it's not an infection. Still very well could be. I think that's a really important thing is what other symptoms are they having? The superficial or primary part of my examination is watching the kid and hearing some of the symptoms like you were talking about before. So the absence of other symptoms is also another thing that triggers me to say, hey, this may be an actual acute otitis media. Because like I said, in the beginning, everybody thinks every parent 
who their little Timmy touches their ear or they say their ear hurts, it's automatically an ear infection because they don't know any different. And that's okay. That's what we're there for. But when they're saying, oh, it, it's sharp pain, they're lacking of their symptoms. And that's a big one for me. So if little Timmy has got a nasal congestion, he's got a runny nose, he's had a headache, he's had these other things. Again, my brain starts going, this is not likely going to be an actual otitis media this is probably more an upper respiratory infection they got some nasal congestion which can create you know that pressure there's a whole litany of symptoms that we're looking for so none of this is a hundred percent and we actually had an ent on who said you know sometimes these symptoms can be you know tricky which is true and he was talking about sinus infections but i feel it's the same way for ears is two-thirds of the kids may not have a bunch of stuff but the other third will so you do have to actually take a look in the ear. But what I'm trying to get across to you is you can start by and large, start kind of funneling down what you are thinking the diagnosis is going to be based off that initial presentation. So going from presentation then to your physical exam, Tom, this one's kind of self-explanatory. I would, I would hope. Um, <laughs> well, well, <laughs> you're going to want to examine the ear and not just the external ear. Yes, you may actually want to look inside and see the uh, tympanic membrane. Yeah, get that otoscope out. And I know even with kids, you know, that's hard to. <laughs> yes, more than it's once I've, we've had yeah. to wrestle people to the ground to take a look at their ear. And what I have found works, at least in my office, and, I'm, you know, it might work for him. You've probably mastered this as well, particularly with those young babies, say 18 months older or less. If the parent will hold the head against their chest with them facing one way or the other, so the ear is out toward me, they're kind of bracing the head against their body, and then that gives me a much cleaner shot at the ear. Now, I may only get a second of a view before we're fighting, but it has helped me to have them use their chest to kind of brace against their head. Yeah, absolutely. That's the go-to tactic for me as well. It also, I think in a way, gives some comfort to the child because they're like, okay, mom or dad's holding me. They're still going to fight. Like for the most part, by and large, they're still going to fight you, but it tends to be a lot less and it's a lot easier. Like you said, it's already braced. So if it gets to uh, an adult person's chest wall, their head's not going to move as much. I think the biggest thing though is like you said, you got to get in there and look, it's going to piss off the kids. They're going to scream. The parents are going to be looking at you. And, and I get all that. But if you are truly going to evaluate this, you have to put eyes on that TM. Yeah. And make sure that you're pulling that earlobe down and kind of opening that ear canal up so that you can get a much better view of it. And again, like we said earlier, you know, with kids covering their ears and they don't want anything messing with their ears because they have an ear infection. And now here you are pull it on their ear and shove stuff in their ear. So that's going to potentially increase the likelihood of the fight, so to speak. In all fairness to the patient in this case, is it the worst pain in the world? No, but I do distinctly remember it's not pleasant. Any sort of pressure is going to cause discomfort. And so messing around with your ear, even a little bit can be something startling to the child. So I try and remember in my head, as frustrating as it can be to try and give them a break because they are in pain. They often don't know what's happening and you're causing them more discomfort by looking in their ear. So just keep those things in mind before you go to tackle the situation, because if you don't have a plan going into it, I guarantee you, you're going to get kicked. I got a I got kicked square to the chest by a little girl when I wasn't paying attention. And well, I got what I deserved. I should have been on top of my game. So you just you deal with what you got to deal with. It does happen. What can you do? <laughs> and I think this is a good point. And I think Ben's about to hit on it, or maybe I'm jumping ahead. I think I see this a lot, especially with new nurse practitioners, is every time an eardrum is red does not mean that the eardrum is infected. There are many, many things that can cause the canal, the canal ridge where the tympanic membrane sits and the tympanic membrane itself or the eardrum to become red. 
I'm sure we're going to dive deeper into this, but knowing what you're looking at, and this is a case where it's the internet is really good for people that are visual learners, because you can pull up Google images of ear infections and actually find a lot of places where you can see eardrums and eardrum progression into an actual ear infection. And a lot of times redness by itself is not an indication of a bacterial infection. Like I said, there's many, many multiple factors, and I can't possibly get into all of them that can cause some irritation to your eardrum. One of the things that is a big one for me is not just effusion, because effusion can be there or not be present. And effusion is like the bubble fluid presence that you can see behind the membrane. For me, it's redness. It's when it's becoming opaque, and we're starting to get some bulge. And to me, that's when I'm starting to go, okay, even if it's not truly completely at a point where I would say that's automatically an ear infection. If I'm starting to see those signs, that's when I know we're on our way. It's one-sided, it's red, it's opaque. We're starting to get some bulge. That is, we're getting an ear infection or we have an ear infection and we need to treat it. Just to elaborate more on the red dependent membrane, because you hit on that earlier, Update has a lot of good information on that. So erythema of the dependent membrane may be caused by vasodilation related to manipulation of the canal crying, high fever. The crying child vascular engorgement is limited to the periphery and handle of the malleus. Uh, vessels crossing the tympanic membrane suggest inflammation. So there's some other ways that the ear can look red and not truly be infected. I think this is the difference between seeing a couple thousand ears now after a couple of years and starting off because in the beginning, they're like, oh, the kid's ear is hurting. Oh, their ear is red. Hence, it must be an ear infection, which is not true. When you're seeing that redness, again, like you just said, if it's along that periphery, if you're looking at a clock face and it's just the outside where the numbers are, I'm not as inclined to be like, hey, this is a this is an ear infection. Maybe it's something we need to watch or maybe we need to talk about a few things. But as Ben said, when that streak or the redness is becoming full face or we're starting to get some of those other things I talked about, that opacity or any sort of bulge, that's when I'm like, OK, some treatment needs to be coming this kid's way. And again, I'm going to just in general say kids because adults can get AOM, but it's not nearly as prevalent as it is with pediatric patients. The best thing that you can do as a if you're a new nurse practitioner or new advanced practitioner, look in everybody's ears, even if they're not there for ear complaints. Look in everybody's ears. Just make it part of your normal assessment that you do, because it's going to be one of those things where if you look at 500 ears or a thousand ears or 2000 ears, when you spot something abnormal, then it's going to be much easier to see because you have just that repetitiveness of, of doing it a thousand times. First, getting into an ear is not all the same. All right. Ben made a very good point. We're supposed to pull down and elongate that ear canal so we can see in there easier for a kid. That's okay. But adults, it's not always that simple. I mean, I have been looking almost straight up into a person's canal to look up into an eardrum. So first of all, it's not all the same, all right? So learning how to maneuver around comfortably without jamming that speculum all the way into their canal is also pretty helpful when a person's being calm. So you learn how to do it when they're not being calm. So that that's, that's a good one. But as Ben said, seeing a couple hundred to a couple thousand eardrums not only helps prepare you for when you're seeing the abnormal, there will be a lot of times where the parents are going to go. And again, I'm just generalizing. You can say this to an adult as well. But when the parent of the child goes, well, the last three times they've had ear infections, what makes you so sure they don't have an ear infection this time? You can start saying, well, I'm seeing A, B, and C, and that's not congruent with otitis media. Now, if I saw D, E, and F, I'd be more, you know, so if you can lay out the case of what you saw and why you don't think it is, or you do think it is, the parents are going to be much more receptive of what you're trying to talk to them about for treatment when they understand because you explained it to them. If you just say, because I said, don't expect a great reception. Now, Tom, what if you get your little otoscope and you get your little speculum and you look in the ear and there's no eardrum. There's no TM. There's no tympanic membrane. Um, I guess at that case, I would make sure I didn't accidentally look in their belly button. So there are cases where you can actually perforate the tympanic membrane. And when I say you, I don't mean you as in the clinician. I mean you as in the patient. So you can't actually get so much pressure from that fluid and that bulging that it will actually rupture the tympanic membrane. And that obviously makes for a whole new set of issues that I 
educate my patients on pretty routinely because I mean, I, I see this a lot, especially in this area with a lot of allergies. You know, we have tons of allergy crap and tons of fluid behind the ears anyway, most of the time because of all the congestion and shit. And then now you've, you know, you get an infection on top of it. It perfs the eardrum. So what I educate my patients on is I tell them, okay, hey, basically there's not much protecting the inner ear from the external environment. So if you're going to be out on a windy day, you need to put some cotton in that ear, the shower, you're going to need to put cotton in that ear. Anything basically you need to protect that for the next two to four weeks while that eardrum is regenerating. Having had a perforated eardrum due to an ear infection before, let's talk about something else that's going to freak them out. Okay. Cause the majority of the time that I've seen the parents or I shouldn't say the parents, the patient and the parents bring them in and we're all talking. I, I don't know if there is some science based on this or if it's just seems to be how it is. They wake up like that. They wake up and there was blood on their pillow or there was discharge on their pillow. So first of all, tell them that's perfectly a okay. Cause they are going to be freaking out that blood or snot just came from their ear. They know that's not supposed to be there. So just go ahead and assure them that that's a perfectly normal thing to happen. If the eardrum perforates due to an ear infection, they don't need to freak out to, as Ben said, the eardrum, unless it's a major perforation, which again, you need to check out is going to heal itself. So there isn't any, they, they don't need emergency surgery. You know, there are cases where grafts have to be used. And of course, you better be sending them to an ENT if you're even thinking that's a possibility. Correct. But it, in the majority of cases, a couple days to a couple weeks, that eardrum is going to be just fine. Also, the last thing to tell somebody if they are just like scared to death of an ear perforation because of an infection, you might want to tell them it's not the worst thing in the world because it tends to make the pain that much better. You'll also hear a lot of parents say, oh, little Timmy, he was just screaming and then all of a sudden he stopped. Yeah, it's because his eardrum popped and all the pressure that was built up from the pain is now running down the side of his ear canal. So while that's scary and it's not ideal, usually you'll see a instantaneous and large change in disposition of the patient, or that's what we reported to you from the parent is like, Oh God, Johnny was just murder. And then suddenly he wasn't. Yeah. I can tell you why you probably want to look in their ear now, but it's not just to identify the infection is to try and get a bullseye on where on the eardrum they have a perforation. I would also give a suggestion if you don't document it this way, I would start, imagine a clock face and then start describing it in your charting as at the nine o'clock position, at the three o'clock position, at the two o'clock position, etc. so that anyone reading that chart can visualize what you're talking about. That is a great tip, particularly if you're going to work in like urgent cares, walk-in clinics, things like that, because, you know, let's say that you see a kid for endotitis media on Tuesday. Well, they come back in Thursday because they're not any better. It's a new clinician that day. You know, all your charting says is, well, they had an ear infection. There's not any explanation. But now if you have, hey, you know, there was, you know, significant bulging erythema. And like you said, describing it as a clock face, that gives them a visualization when they go in and look at the ear to see what they're seeing based on from what you were seeing. Yeah. And it, it's just a really good habit you got to remember the TM is not the easiest thing in the world to see. And only one person at a time can see it. I mean, I'm sure there's some ENTs with some cool like video scopes or something, but 99% of us are one eyeball at a time going to be looking at this. So in order to better paint that picture and make it uniform, I think that's a really good way for most people. And I think most people can visualize a clock. So I think that's just important for you as a clinician when you're charting to make that information known. And I, I did have one case where I saw an ear infection, someone else did not. And what I will say in, to that is when you're looking at the tympanic membrane, make sure that you're looking at every bit of that tympanic membrane, you know, every quadrant, every section of that. Because what it basically was, was this person had an ear infection in the upper portion of the TM and... When the other clinician looked at it, they just kind of looked straight in and said, oh, no, it's fine. When, in fact, the infection was up just a little bit higher and had they just kind of pointed the speculum up a little bit higher, they would have seen it. So just make sure you're looking at every portion of the tympanic membrane. To make a clinical diagnosis of acutotitis media in children, 
either there's bulging of the tympanic membrane, distinct fullness or bulging of the tympanic membrane is the most specific and reproducible sign of acute inflammation or perforation of the tympanic membrane with acute purulent odorrhea if acute otitis externa has been excluded. So that's the actual way to make a clinical diagnosis of acute otitis media. And otitis externa is a whole different game for a whole different problem. So we're not going to tackle that tonight. But that is important to be able to distinguish that and explain. Because like I said, you're probably going to have to talk to somebody or chart something that nobody else can see. So make sure you're very clear about why you know what landmarks you're looking for and to describe it. Got our presentation. We've got our physical exam. We've got our diagnosis. Only thing left, Tom, is that treatment yeah so treatment can be um well can be tricky let's talk about this for just a second i think we've talked about in other shows but the general public really does not understand the difference between a side effect and something that may happen with use of a medication (laughs) so for example my stomach hurts when i take amoxicillin that can be a perfectly normal effect of taking that medication. However, what they're going to start reporting is that they have an allergy to (laughs) um, amoxicillin. And it's very important, especially with children, when the parent says, oh, they can't take amoxicillin, they're allergic to it, to actually ascertain what the allergy is. I am not kidding you. I've had people say that they're allergic to Benadryl because it made them tired. Well, but it made them sleepy. They said that with a straight face to me, thinking that that was a legitimate do not take this medication side effect is it made them tired. As the clinician, it may be your job to say, well, what happens when Timmy takes penicillin based medications so that if they say, hey, he breaks on hives and he starts feeling sick, like, well, you're right. You probably don't want this kid taking a bunch of penicillin. But if it was like he doesn't like the way it tastes, that is not a side effect. That is not an allergy. You can still give that kid amoxicillin. Now, whether the parent gives it to them may be a different problem, but you can still prescribe it. That's important to know what medications are available to you. I think it's also important to start off with the two most common things that cause ear infections. So the two most common things are going to be strep or homophilus influenza. Those are the two most common organisms that are going to cause bacterial otitis media in a child. Both the AAFP and up-to-date recommend, of course, treating pain. Yes. So ibuprofen, acetaminophen, appropriate waste-based dosages. There's lots of studies out that say that this does help with treating otitis media pain. Years ago, they used to use benzocaine or uh, was it benzocaine drops? I don't know. That that must have been before my time. I've never it was heard of that. drops. It was like a benzocaine it was a numbing medicine. We used them quite a bit in otitis media stuff because it numbed the eardrum. In the United States, those have been pulled by the FDA completely because they could not assess their efficacy appropriately. So in the United States, we do not have benzocaine. We do not have the aralgan eardrops, anything like that. That when sounds get, terrible. <laughs> when we get into antibiotics, both AAFP and up-to-date agree on how this is supposed to be done. Here's where some of this is not hard for me to grasp again, but more hard for me to kind of remember. The choice of strategy depends upon the age of the child. So we recommend children less than six months with an acutitis media be treated immediately with an appropriate antibiotic. Six months to two years with a unilateral or a bilateral otitis media treated immediately with an appropriate antibiotic. Children over two who appear toxic have persistent ear pain for more than 48 hours fevers greater than 102, have a bilateral otitis media, or have uncertain access to follow-up, be immediately treated with appropriate antibiotics. For children greater than two who are normal hosts, so they're immunocompetent, they have mild symptoms, no, uh, no otorrhea, recommendation is initial observation may be appropriate if the caretakers understand the risks and benefits of such, a, such an approach. When we get into the antibiotics... High-dose amoxicillin is the antibiotic of choice for treating otitis media. In the past, because I've, you know, I've been at eight years now-ish doing this, I did about 40, mig, 40 to 50 megs per kg, and then I would break it up twice a day. They are now saying high-dose amoxicillin at 80 to 90 megs per kg per day is the antibiotic of choice for treating acute otitis media in patients who are not allergic to penicillin. The reason 
Increasing the dose of amoxicillin from 40 mg per kg per day to 90 mg per kg per day increases the concentration of amoxicillin in the middle ear. This increased concentration provides activity against most strains of streptococcus pneumoniae, including virtually all reported as intermediate concentration and uh, S pneumonia that are high re- highly resistant to penicillin. So that is why they made the change to a high dose of amoxicillin. And I, my head still goes to like 50 to 60 mg per kg. I need to do better about prescribing it at that higher dose. So yeah, as a, as a standard going forwards, first of all, you must be really old because it's always been 80 to 90 mg per kg for me. So sucks Thanks. to be you. I don't want to tell you. Second of all is while it's good to know that, honestly, it's also good to know where to stop. So one gram per dose is usually the recommendation, either two or three divided doses in a day. Those are all really important things to think about. Also, when you're talking to the parents and you're having to use a liquid, which again is going to be pretty frequent. I think it's really important because I see a lot of new NPs do this. They will calculate out that dose and they'll be like, oh, it's supposed to be 3.469 milliliters per dose. And I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, 3.469 milliliters per dose. So that's what I'm going to put on the prescription. I'm like, or you could just put 3.5 and make everyone's day a lot easier. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like, so it sounds really simple, but it's really easy to overlook, especially in the beginning when you're doing this dosage and you're like, I got to be exact. Well, we do want you to be, you know, very precise. However, the person has to actually be able to get the medicine into their face and then swallow it so that you can treat them. So these poor parents at home, they're dealing with a pissed off kid, you know, that you just made angrier. They're trying to give a medicine. Please do not give someone a weird dosage, like three to the fourth power divided by a square root of something. Like, don't, don't do that stuff. If it's three point something, 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 do three or do 3.5. Please give a poor a break to these poor parents trying to treat this patient that they're having to wrestle to the ground and squirt medicine into their mouth anyways. Let's just harken back to old days, Tom. We can like convert it into grains like uh, nursing oh, school. Lord. Yeah. Well, I got enough problems with nursing school with grains and drams and stuff that's illegal to prescribe in dosage. Yet they're still teaching nursing students this stuff like who makes that that makes no sense. But anyways, so it is really important. Um, amoxicillin is the go to. Here's the next thing. Amoxicillin taste fairly decent for a medicine. Yeah. So that's another that is a bonus. Whoever thought of that, <laughs> you know, give that person an award. So most of the time that first dose is hard to get the kid to take. But after that, usually it's pretty simple. It's, and everyone's, I'm sure, a little different. But usually it's like a bubblegum type flavor. So the kid's don't really have a problem. So lots of ibuprofen, Tylenol, make sure that's staying on board and then get started on those antibiotics. If you have a couple days of antibiotic treatment with no perceived improvement, Augmentin is the next go-to, but I'll be real honest, Ben, I usually go to something else like a cephalosporin, like ceftonir or something. And the other thing that changed, Tom, basically if they're under two, the recommendation is 10 days of therapy, two and older recommendation is therapy from five to seven days for the antibiotics. So that's another thing that we need to be mindful of when we're prescribing this medications. It's interesting to hear you talk about the changes in prescription methods. I actually had a patient one time tell me that when they were a kid and this person was very elderly, that the doctor put them on amoxicillin and that they told them to take 50 milligrams a day to prevent things from getting worse. I was like, what things? And they looked at me and they said, I don't know. That's what they told me to do. So this person was on amoxicillin for like three months at 50 milligrams. So I can't even figure out what they were trying to treat because I was like, wow, things have really changed on how we prescribe medications to patients. And I just stuck to my head because they specifically, they're like, no, it was amoxicillin. That's why I think I have problems with amoxicillin today. I'm like, hmm. Maybe, but it's still, it's interesting how we keep refining dosages and lengths of time and we're trying to shorten them as much as possible. Yeah. If you are going to do observation as opposed to antibiotic therapy, again, this is for your children who are immunocompetent, have mild symptoms. They say it may be an option for six to 23 months of age. 
A large perspective study of the strategy of observation found that two out of three children will recover without antibiotics. The American Academy of Family Physicians recommend not prescribing antibiotics for otitis media in children 2 to 12 years of age with non-severe symptoms if observation is a reasonable option. American Academy of Pediatrics also suggests initial observation with pain control as an option for healthy children between 6 to 24 months with unilateral non-severe otitis media and children greater than 2 with unilateral or bilateral non-severe otitis media. However, if you are going to observe, you need to have a mechanism in place to ensure appropriate treatment of symptoms persists more than 48 to 72 hours. So whether they're scheduled on a follow-up visit with you, whether you're doing a backup antibody prescription, if the symptoms persist, whatever the case may be, make sure that you have something in place if you end up needing it. So this is one of those times where I understand the recommendations. I'm not saying that they're not scientifically sound. I think the application is almost impossible, borderline impossible. Trying to tell a parent like, well, it is infected, but I'm not going to give you an antibiotic. Good luck with that course of action. Also, you're basically asking them to say, hey, watch your kid be in pain, but don't do anything about it. I know Tylenol, you know, ibuprofen, but we have created an environment in which the patient satisfaction now affects us. You are going to have a hard sell trying to tell a parent that yes, your kid positively has otitis media, but I want you to watch him for two days. And if he doesn't better bring him back, like I just find it impractical as a realistic option to treat my patients. I didn't say it was wrong. I didn't say there wasn't scientific basis. What I said was the day that they stop using press to measure my ability to do my job. That's a, that's a better option. Today, and the way the world is now, I don't think that's going to fly. I don't know if I should leave that in or not, man. I think you should. It's true. So, Ben, there is one more sticking point other than the other stuff we've talked about, and that is if they have tubes. And everyone's got like a PE tubes, tympastony tubes. I've heard all, I don't even know if I said that right, but I've seen all sorts of names for these things. But if you say ear tubes, everybody knows what you're talking about. So the big thing becomes, what do you do if a child has PE tubes and they have otitis media? Well, you can treat with oral medications. That is not the first line recommendation. The The first line recommendation then becomes antibiotic drops. And what are those drops, Tom? <laughs> what are those drops? Thank you, Ben. If we're going to be using drops, uh, the primary one, as far as I know, is ofloxacin. Yeah, that or the, you can also use like ciprofloxacin with dexamethasone. I would really like to talk about that for a second. Okay. Because ciprodex... I think is a great medication. I feel like there's a butt coming. Especially when there's a large amount of pain involved with this because the dexamethasone really helps it out. But this becomes a, this is a sore subject for me because I had a patient that really needed some Ciprodex and their insurance would not pay for it. I knew that's where it was going. I knew that's because it is. It's a pain in the ass to get insurance companies to pay for Ciprodex. I agree. So, and again, here's the overwhelmingly, not just frustrating, but pathetically disgusting part of this is this little person was in pain and I couldn't help them because somebody in an insurance company decided that saving a few bucks on Ciprodex was more important than actually treating the patient that their parents were paying good money for this insurance company to help. You know, they were paying this insurance company to provide a service that the insurance company then not only did not want to provide adequately, but then was trying to tell the clinician, which was me, how there was a better way to do their job where they had not seen a chart. They had not looked in this person's ear. They had not heard or done anything other than they saw dollar signs and there was less dollar signs. And that's the ofloxacin than there was Ciprodex. And while ofloxacin is a very good medication. And nine times out of 10, that's probably what I was going to prescribe anyways. In this particular case, the right medication and the right treatment for my patient was not afloxacin. So when you get ready to prescribe this, just be aware that there is some asshole that is going to fight you so that their money can make a few extra bucks and screw over your patient. Just be aware that that's what's about to happen. 
we know we can't get through a JSP episode without a Tom rant. And uh, so you can tell <laughs> we're back on JSP and not we'll continue to monitor, man. Woo. All right. Well, before, now we got you all fired up, Tom. Let's wrap up this Back to Basics episode. As we said at the beginning of this, man, if you are working in family practice, urgent care, ERs, walk-ins, whatever the case may be, if you're seeing kid, you're seeing ear infections. So hopefully this episode will help you not only feel more confident in looking at ears and diagnosing ear infections, but treating ear infections. I hope so, too. And again, I the core of JSP was we want to be educational, but we don't want to be just a PowerPoint. So we like to throw in our personal experiences and stuff like that. So I, I know maybe everything I say isn't always the most popular with the crowd, but certainly nothing I said was wrong. All right. You, you're going to get into a fight with insurance companies. If you try and use drops, you're going to be in a fight with that kid. <laughs> you know, if, if you're trying to look at their ear, maybe not every time enough that I would tell you to have a strategy for holding down a unwilling child patient to look in their ears. And I agree with Ben. I think the the parent holding them is the best. But unfortunately, sometimes I have parents that are like, I don't want to be there when they're hurting or I don't want them to associate me with pain. I'm like, oh, great. Thanks. So, you know, maybe you and your nurse, you know, in there dealing with this kid and that and that's OK, too. But there's a lot more that goes into medicine and in this case, otitis media than just knowing strep causes it or that penicillin or cephalosporins are the treatment there's a lot more so i hope that this was a good educational and you actually took something away from it type episode for jsp yep on that note you'll see us again in two weeks i think we'll i think we're going to talk continuous glucose monitors i believe is what the next episode is hmm. we'll see uh, it all depends on the editing so <laughs> have you uh have you ever worn one no i have not I have, so I guess I can talk about that. There you go. We will have an expert on as well, so it'll be good. Um, <laughs> well, I wouldn't call myself an expert, Ben. I just... I wasn't talking about you. Oh. Um, <laughs> make sure you're checking out our other show. We'll continue to monitor. We're going to talk about all kinds of weird stuff. Tom's already got like 17 episodes planned, I think. I don't... Uh, the way his mind works, it's amazing. I, I just... I feed it a little bit and it just runs. So when it comes to weird and creepy shit. Yep. On that note, wash your hands, wear your mask. Have a great week. Hey, everybody. Make sure you stay safe out there. Insurance companies. But swearing just to pass the time. Lately, I see why I am alone. I caught some road bridge and I thought of you. All the many times you say I should have known Took a presso I could find my cheek Find mediocrities The best that I could do Let's a shower Yeah.